How's it going, Matthew? It's uh, been a while, but it's a pleasure having you back on. I think last time we had a fantastic conversation about uh, Vigi Trust and everything in between. Yeah, nice to see you again, and thanks again for the opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know what what uh, what has been going on with Vigi Trust and the <clears throat> the advisory board uh, space. In, in the past six, six eight months? Yeah, so uh, we've been super busy this year with the advisory board. Uh, as you know, we have more than 800 members, probably 850 members from 32 countries at this stage. And uh, we held uh, an amazing event in, in Dublin, in Ireland, uh, back in May, over three days. We had 120 people who flew over from, uh, I think, about 20 countries at that stage to join us for three days of uh, brainstorming, uh, networking, and essentially building friendships and, and bridges between key stakeholders of the, the security industry. So, of course, we had CISOs, we had members of the, the law enforcement, we had academia, independent subject matter experts, and so on. And it, we had a, we really had a great time. I think it was the the, the first big event since COVID. Uh, everybody wanted to be there. Everybody wanted to be part of it. The discussions were amazing, and and it was great. Um, I, I suppose it, the 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 discussions were generally speaking uh, uh, probably overshadowed, I guess, by uh, by the the, the situation uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and the geopolitical risks and the impact on supply chain and so on. So we we did talk a lot about uh, the impact of of Russia invading Ukraine uh, from a cybersecurity perspective, a critical infrastructure protection perspective, um, and and also that that led us to discuss you know what else is going on in the world that could impact cybersecurity or could impact critical infrastructure. But that's not all we discussed. We, we had some amazing discussions around diversity and inclusion in, in cyber, around the evolution of, of uh, security standards and regulations, primarily PCI 4.0, the uh, Indian Data Protection Bill, uh, PIPAL in China. Uh, we spoke about building security cultures, um, and we also talked about uh, the impact of new technology uh, from a consumer perspective, so essentially making their lives easier, but increasing their their risk surface, and then the impact of new cybersecurity technology for companies and for governments. Um, so we had a great time, um, and, and obviously we um, we collected a lot of information. In fact, we are about to release. Uh, in, in, a, in a few weeks, just before October uh, for, for Awareness Month, uh, the annual uh, VGTrust Global Advisory Board report that, that's going to cover all of the key topics that, that we discussed in, in Dublin. So it's been, it's been super busy. Oh, wow. That, that is, that's very interesting. I, uh, you know, I, I got the invite to go and typically I, I would go. The only problem was that my wife and I were closing on a house fairly soon. And so it was just like, there wasn't enough to go around, you know? 
And, yeah. But yeah. Uh, the the next one I really want to go to. I, I really want to make that happen because I, I think. Um, I mean, it's probably one of the most impactful, you know, sessions out there, right? Like you're having the top leaders in the industry coming together, talking about what they're seeing at their different teams and whatnot, and their different companies and their, you know, specific spaces and kind of comparing notes and becoming better as a whole. And I think that um, that's an extremely valuable forum. It's very different from any other security conference that we that we have because all the other security conferences tend to go you know very deep technically and and don't really focus on world events and how they impact uh security on the ground and so i I think it's very valuable yeah and and we hope to be able to uh, host you at one of the the events uh, and maybe get you to to do a few interviews as well i think that uh for me, uh, I always say that the job of a security professional is a very lonely job. If you do your job correctly, nobody knows your name. Uh, but if something goes wrong just once, you're public enemy uh, number one within the organization very quickly, and it might stick with you for a few years. And so it's very important to to get people to understand that, uh, you know, there are other people that have the exact same challenges, and we need to share how things work. Of course, we need to share best practices, but we also need to be, uh, I suppose, mature enough to say, hey, you know, this is what I did in the past and it didn't work for me. I don't want you to make the same mistakes. And that's really what I'm creating is, you know, the, the, the real purpose here is to, to create a community of people that are not afraid to talk about what doesn't work. That are you know that that say these are my challenges right now. Does anyone anyone else have the same ones? Because you know the, the likelihood is if somebody in the room has that question in their head, some, somebody else has the same question. Um, so we need to encourage uh, collaboration. And of course, there are some 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 items that we can't discuss and 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 so on. But uh, we we really need to create that community. And, and I think that I, I've been in the cyber industry for over. 22 years now at this stage and i've been to probably i was going to say hundreds of conferences maybe not hundreds but definitely a few hundreds um and the 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 challenge is either there's a commercial agenda it's completely sponsored and overtaken by vendors and we do need vendors don't get me wrong we need the technology and so on but the 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 vendor-driven events are good if you're looking for new technology, if you're looking to build a relationship with a vendor, which you should, but they're not good for collaboration between the attendees per se. Um, the, the the events where you, you go to, say, uh, an organization like ISACA, ISSA, IAPP, and ISC Squared, and, and we're members of, uh, so I'm a member of uh, most of them. I speak at their events, and I think they're very high-quality events. Um, but sometimes there's a, a, a commercial agenda to sell you training or certification. Well, and, and you need training and certification as well. But there's very few, very few platforms where the, the unique goal is to foster collaboration. And that's really what we're trying to do. Collaboration between the CISOs, collaboration between industries, collaboration between law enforcement and industry and academia. Um, 
grooming, so to speak, the, the next generation of cyber professionals, making sure that we've got a good ratio from a DNI perspective. Um, this is really giving back to the community. And there's a great adage in life that uh, if you want to do well, the first thing you need to do is be thankful in the morning for what you have and then uh, try and help other people. Because when you try and help, it comes back to you ten tenfold and you want to help again. And it's kind of, it's kind of snowballs into a, a, collabor a collaborative kind of uh, process. Um, and, 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 you know, I've, I, I think that the, the bad guys, they collaborate a lot. It's about time we, we did the same, you know? Yeah, it's very true. And, uh, you know, I, I've said it before on the podcast where, uh, attackers only need to be right exactly one time. They, they only need to be right one time and they can try a million different things, a million different ways to get that one try. But as defenders, you need to be right every single time. And if you're wrong one time, like Congress knows your name, like, you, you know, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can run into that risk just like with uh, with Equifax. You know, when that happened, no one knew who that CISO was. Maybe their CEO did. Maybe the CTO did. But I mean, no one no one outside of Equifax knew who the CISO of Equifax was. And then this breach happens whether it's, you know, her fault or not. And everyone knows her name, you know, and, and it's a, it's a crazy situation where, you know, it, it's difficult. It's difficult being in this field. It's not, it's not the easiest field to choose. Certainly in it, it you know, I, uh, I, I give the joke a lot of the times, you know, when I started, I had hair, but it's very true. <laughs> you know, what, because earlier on in, in your career in cybersecurity, um, you're doing things that that you won't be able to do, plain and simply, later on in your career, like 80-hour weeks, 100-hour weeks. You know, when you develop in your career, you're kind of more split brain. You're typically doing things for yourself to develop your, your own skill sets in your own career, as well as doing the things that you need to do for your job. Um but yeah, it's it's a very uh, interesting time, I think, to be in security. Yeah, and I I think you know if you look at um, uh, basics of uh, psychology, right, um, and you see there's a, a dispute between two parties. Um, so let's say it's a couple; they're not getting on, and they need support. Um, or let's say it's a father and son, or mother and daughter, or whatever. Um, the, the, the key basic here is that it's not one party against another, it's the two of us against the problem. And I think that one of the issues that we have in, in cybersecurity is we're seeing the security and compliance team on one side and the key decision makers, the board, the C-level on the other side. And so they're kind of fighting against each other, uh, about the, the cybersecurity issues that they have, whereas they should be fighting the cybersecurity challenges together, uh, if you get right. married. So, so it's the two of them against the same problem. Um, and, and the only way you can do that is by having that collaboration internally and that dialogue in plain English, where we're able as security professionals to explain 
hey, did you see what happened in the first half of 2022? Are you aware of the geopolitical risks? Are you aware of supply chain issues? Uh, do you know that it can affect our profits in the end? Do you know that in order to fix that, it's going to take so many man hours? Maybe we need to hire a few more people. But on the other hand, we're going to guarantee that we can continue doing good business as opposed to going in and saying, everybody's being attacked. We need to do something about it. Well, of course, you know, that's not, that's not news for anyone. Um, and it's also not a compelling argument for the board. The board, they, they need to report to shareholders. They need to create profits. They need to create employment. Um, we need to be able to say, uh, there's something happening right now. There's, different bubbles of risks against our ecosystem. Let me explain to you how this can impact the bottom line, how this can impact our growth. And then you can have an informed decision and you'll get a sponsor. So it's, it's a case of making it easier for them to support you. And I think that the, the, the challenge, as you said, is that sometimes the, the, the discussions are way too technical, right? And we lose people... Um, I mean, I must confess that sometimes I go to conferences and uh, the, the, the level of uh, technical discussions, like some of the stuff goes way above, above my head because it, it's too, I don't need to understand the, the, what actually happens at whatever layer, you know, but I do need to understand how it works, generally speaking, where it fits in into the ecosystem, the threats that it's addressing, the limitations, the opportunities, the challenges, that's really what I need to be able to convey to the advisory board, for instance. And for those who want a technical session and they want to, uh, uh, as we say in, in, in French, like you lift the bonnet and you put your hands in to see how the engine works, well, you can do that, but the board doesn't care about that. You're, you're going to lose them. They're going to say to you, I provide you with the fuel, you make the engine work, you know, and... Um, we, we, we're losing ourselves sometimes in, in technology. Uh, and again, as I said earlier on, we need the technology. It's not that we don't need it, but not everybody needs to know how it works. Yeah, so you know, one of the challenges that I have found to be pretty consistent across almost every organization that I've been at has been cutting through the marketing material of all the different vendors out there and trying to actually figure out, you know, what product actually works best within a given company, within a given organization. Because, you know, just because an organization is on the, the uh, Gartner Magic Quadrant, right, and they're rated the best, doesn't mean it fits every single org. Um, at least that's that's my experience. And so, uh, you know, I'm really wondering at, with Vigitrust, or, you know, do you guys uh, discuss that component of it as well? I wonder if, I wonder if at the CISO level, if they are, you know, noticing that kind of activity as well. Yeah, you know, that that's interesting because I don't know if you attended the RSA conference this year or any of the, the top conferences, but the every year there's a couple of buzz years buzz expressions or words. And this year, everything was zero trust. 
right? So mm. any vendor that was doing anything, whether they were selling hardware, security awareness, IDS, IPS, you can name it, they were all into zero trust. So all of the marketing teams had been very busy repackaging everything towards zero trust. And the, the reality is that some did do zero trust. Others were just trying to piggyback on, on the current trends, which from a marketer's perspective is you, you can understand that. The challenge for CISOs is that they don't necessarily have the time to research everything uh, before they go to a show or whatever. And uh, when they're at a show, they're invited to dinners and they're kind of being somewhat brainwashed, so to speak, into the latest technology. So I think that we, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, as security professionals, we need to be mindful to educate them on on what the technology can and cannot do, right? So um, yes, providing security awareness training has something to do with zero trust. Uh, is a vendor like VG Trust or others that do security awareness training, do they really play in that, <laughs> in that space? It's kind of debatable, you know? Um, with regards to the, to the analysts, uh, magic quadrants and, and reports, um, certainly from, from our perspective, um, uh, when you look at VG Trust as a vendor, we always welcome being listed. But this is not what, what drives us because, first of all, uh, it's clear that some of the, the analysts, uh, the more you spend with them, the better chance you have to be in, in the reports. Uh, so I pay more attention to the, to, to the analysts that are probably a little bit less known and probably doing a bit more actual research. I also look at the KPIs that they use. Um, so are the KPIs your install base or are they um, the level of innovation that you bring or are they a mix of that plus do you really address the challenge that you claim to to be addressing? That's really what the CISOs need, need to look at. Now, don't get me wrong, all of those reports have a value and they've been here for years, they're not going to go away. Uh, and if my name is uh, on, or my company's name is on one of them, I'll certainly put it on LinkedIn as a, some sort of a stamp of approval from the industry. But um, I do believe that you need to be mindful and you need to look at the at the KPIs. And what's interesting is that they all use different KPIs, right? So some are based on user feedback, very interesting. Uh, some are based on the level of innovation compared to the previous version. Some are based on the uh, the generic features that 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 the solution provides and how that addresses security challenges. Other will be more based on the technology itself, you know, how far down the stack does it go? How often is it updated? And I think that the reality is for a CISO, you need to look at three or four of those reports and you need to come up with your own KPIs and then use that as a qualification questionnaire when you're looking for something new and send it to, to, to a few vendors that you already trust or you've heard of that have been recommended to you, because then you, you're much more in control. And of course, you can use the, the, the reports as a, as a benchmark. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. One thing that I've found that works really well 
is uh, finding a reseller that you trust, that you know you believe in, and, and you know, especially having a sales rep at that reseller that you know you you trust a lot. And when you're on the market for a new product or whatever the solution might be, you literally just give your criteria, you know, to that reseller and say, what's the best on the market that you have that fits our organization? Um, you know, I, I, I do a lot of work personally uh, with Archon and they don't sponsor me or anything like that. But I have found someone at Archon that I trust implicitly, you know, and he has you know, steered me away from disaster products that, uh, you know, look great on paper, right? They look great on the website and everything like that. And he has steered me towards products that work for the environment. Um, so I, I think that that's also another angle that they could potentially take if they, if they can find someone that they trust. I know it's, <laughs> I know it's quite difficult because, uh, th- there's, there's just so many of them out there. And you don't know who's telling you the truth until you start doing business with them. Uh, absolutely. And so if, we, if you have somebody you trust from the vendor perspective, that, that's great. Equally, you should probably have a couple of people you trust from uh, a methodology perspective. Right. So uh, somebody some uh, within a consulting firm that can advise you. And so you just heard that you needed to be in compliance with SOC 2. Well, you pick up the phone and you say, hey, I've kind of done, I've done a little bit of research. Can you guide me? What would you do? And they, you know, if they are good consultants or good salespeople, they'll know that there's value in advising you anyway, even if they don't buy from you immediately, because this is all a relationship-based purchase, especially in, in security, right? Because what we sell is trust. Um, of course, we, we sell services and we, we sell solutions, but we sell that, that trust bond um, that, that will actually lead that person to call you back as the, as the preferred uh, go-to person within the reselling community. Um, and yes, it's, it's a very good point. Yeah. So with Vigitrust, and, and I, I, you're going to have to forgive me, I, I don't know if you guys offer this sort of uh, solution, but, you know, with world events going on and, and you know, everything that's going on in, in China and Russia, Ukraine, all of those places, do you send out like a bulletin to, you know, everyone that's, um, you know, a board member uh, on the advisory board at Vigitrust saying like, hey, this is going on in the world. This, these are the kind of attacks that we're seeing associated with this. Keep an eye out. I feel like that might actually be very valuable um, because one, like I can only think of maybe one or two or three organizations that do it and they're all like government organizations. Um, and so they, they have their own, you know, ways of presenting that information. Right. And they, they can only share so much. Um, but I feel like it might be valuable because, you know, Vigitrust has so many professionals throughout the industry, you know, through throughout the industry of security, but the industry of, every industry. Right. Um, and, and so I think that something like that could be valuable is something like that on the roadmap. Does it exist already? Are you looking into that? So what we do is we do briefings. Um, generally speaking with a a keynote speaker that's going to talk for about 10, 15 minutes 
on the latest threats. Um, and we've had, we've had folks from uh, CrowdStrike, we've had folks from IDC, we've had folks from other vendors that come in and say, this is our annual report or our quarterly report, this is what we're seeing. And then we, we get a, a, a panel of, of folks to discuss what's happening. What we are doing is we're uh, launching our um, uh, the latest version of our annual uh, v- VG Trust Global Advisory Board report um, in October for uh, Cyber Awareness Month. And right now, we, we do those monthly briefings as well as the yearly report. We are uh, launching a newsletter, which is going to be quarterly with a threat update. Uh, the challenge with uh, reporting on threats uh, every three months is that by the time you go to uh, printing, you know, some of them have been addressed or there's new ones. But I mean, we're not a crowd strike. We're not one of those, uh, you know, attack mitigation right. companies. So, uh, but we try and get everybody together. Uh, and, and again, I think that if you look at the, um, uh, the, the, the kind of knowledge base that a CISO or a risk manager needs to have, they definitely need to look at threat intelligence, right? I mean, uh, uh, threat intelligence is something that we discussed at the advisory board ma- many times. The, the real challenge with threat intelligence is if you, if you look at a few of the key vendors, uh, they will always identify the same trends. And then some of them will focus on ransomware. Other will focus on keystroke encryption and that kind of stuff. Um, so again, you need to, you need to say, okay, what my ecosystem, what kind of threats is it, uh, potentially, uh, going to be attacked with? And then choose the vendors that actually focus on that and then use a vendor that's kind of generic to look at maybe zero day attacks and so on. Threat intelligence is, is something suddenly with our biggest clients, um, we've noticed a trend in the last two years that the security team hire threat intelligence people. Uh, whereas a few years ago, they would, have, they would have hired, uh, folks specializing in encryption and, and blockchain and so on. Right now, there's a bit more money going to threat intelligence. Hmm. That's really interesting. And that makes sense though, from a, from a needs perspective, right? Like you don't know what you should be defending against if you don't know what the threats are out there. And I think that's a very valuable part that is often overlooked. I've, I've actually only been at one other organization where they had a threat intelligence team and we're yeah. One org where they even just had a threat intelligence tool. Um, and then I, I remember because my next organization that I went to, I pitched, you know, in, involving a, a threat intelligence company, you know, getting them into our security stack. And I was laughed out of the room. They were like, why would I do that? Like, that's just throwing away money. We know what our threats are. And the director couldn't name one of them, but he said that they knew what they were. <laughs> mm. You know, um, it's a really interesting space that's been overlooked for too long, I think. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that uh, certainly in, in banking, uh, threat intelligence is really big and the banks communicate with each other from time to time. You mentioned earlier on that mm. from, from a government perspective, there's only so much that they can share. And that has always been one of the, the issues with collaboration between law enforcement and private industry. Private industry always feels that they're sharing more 
than what the government is sharing. The government is always saying, well, we have stuff that we can't actually share because, uh, you know, for national security and so on. Um, that said, I, I think there's, there's been a, a little bit of progress made. Um, and, and the challenge for an organization is to take all those sources and, and make sense of, of the list of all the threats because there's so many of them. I, I, and that's why I go back to that idea of knowing your ecosystem. If you don't know your ecosystem, you don't really know the attack surface. Um, and unless you know the attack surface, you can't know what type of attack to, to watch out for. You know, so it's a case of you can't protect what you don't know. And so you need to know your, your own environment so as to tell the threat intelligence team, by the way, we just acquired this new business and we, we have a connection with them. This is what they do. And then the threat intelligence guys can say, okay, well, the attack surface has changed. So therefore we need to add that type of attack and that type of attack to our, to our library to, to look for potential attacks. Um, and then from a, from a disaster recovery or business continuity perspective, you need to say, okay, well, now we potentially have additional incidents. The likelihood is so much. The potential impact is so much. And our risk appetite is so much. And we make an informed decision as to how we're going to protect ourselves. Um, so I, I always say, as you know, that, that security is a journey and not a destination. And, and that's the proof here that, you know, the, the attack surface changes all the time. So it can't be a destination because along your journey, you, your attack surface keeps moving and you just need to adapt your defenses and your, your, your ability to uh, withstand an attack at, at all times. Yeah, it's a good point. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, like you said previously, the latest buzz term is zero trust. And it's like everyone's acting like zero trust is going to be the end all be all. Right. And then yeah. a new attack will come out and it bypasses some zero trust control. Um, and, you know, there, there's going to be another buzzword that that is the new <laughs> new thing to deploy. Right. Um well, so it's all it, it, if I can bounce back on that, I think that the, the concept of zero trust is not exactly new. You know, you look at uh, trustworthy computing from Microsoft 2002, if, if, I'm, if I'm correct, uh, that is basically saying if you don't trust, don't don't allow it. You look at uh, the the key the key fundamental of a firewall. Um, you know, source, destination, service, action. If you don't know, you just deny. That's zero trust, you know, and you look at PCI uh, and you look at requirement one on firewalls that says for every rule on your firewall, you need a business justification. If you don't have a business justification, you can't have the rule. That's zero trust. Um, I think what's really interesting about some of the new vendors out there on zero trust is we're basically saying, uh, we are going to build some sort of a trust credit system um, whereby we say, hey, if you've been behaving that way and we know where you are, we know we manage the attack surface within you. If you continue to behave that way and your your trust score is going up, it's a little bit like credit score, we'll, we'll extend a few more things to you and then we'll monitor that. And as long as you continue working well and there's not no problem, we can extend your trust on a needs basis, but at least we have history on your behavior that 
can allow us to demonstrate that we didn't take that decision to open that um, that that new system to you just because you asked. Uh, you had to prove yourself first, and I think that's an interesting it's an interesting approach. Hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting approach to uh, to deploying you know, a zero trust mentality even throughout the environment. Um, what are, what are some upcoming trends, you know, potentially through the rest of the year or even the beginning of next year that you're seeing that organizations are already adjusting to or preparing to adjust to? Is there anything like that? Yeah. So I, I had a, a, a few very interesting dis- discussions in the in the last few weeks with uh, CISOs, with legal counsels, um, uh, CEOs around that concept of uh, UDPR, uh, so Universal Data Protection Regulation, um, mm. and uh, or UDPF, yeah, Universal Data Protection Framework. Um, so uh, when you look at the evolution of of uh, data privacy regulation, you see that. Yeah, years ago, you look like 15 years ago in the US, it was always based on the idea that we're not going to tell you how to protect, but we're going to tell you what to do if something goes wrong with data breach notification frameworks and so on. Um, in Europe, it was exactly the opposite. We're not going to tell you what to do if something goes wrong. The market will decide your fate, um, mm-hmm. but we're, we're going to tell you how to protect in the first place. And then you saw some convergence and the first level of convergence, I, I believe, uh, was uh, Massachusetts MA201, um, which really was based on the old data protection directive in, in, in the EU. And then now, you, over the last few years, the last, specifically the last three years, you saw conversion, conversion, uh, sorry, conversion between the two approaches where there's a much uh, stronger data breach notification framework in the EU, thanks to GDPR, and there's a lot more data privacy state regulations and bills being proposed for federal regulation on uh, protecting the data in the first place. So you look at CCPA, you look at the the, the equivalent in Virginia and a few other states. So the, the again, the challenge for an organization is how do I build a universal data protection program or framework uh, that will give me a baseline that will address all of the key requirements of the North American system, uh, EU system, maybe PIPOL if you deal with China, maybe uh, some other stuff like the South African regulation. Um, and then based on that, on, on that baseline, I can have some regional or local uh, hubs that will look at the implementation of, of, of local regulations. Um, and, and I think that a lot of large distributed organizations have started to think about that. They, they don't quite know what to do yet, um, but they do realize the challenge. You know, And sometimes you have to understand that some of those regulations might be conflicting with each other. So that's also a, a, an additional challenge. So I think that in, in the space of um, offering services around policies and around uh, legal support for those universal data protection frameworks, uh, there's going to be, that could potentially become a a new buzzword. Certainly, um, like VGTrust operates in the governance risk compliance, so GRC and integrated risk management IRM markets. 
uh, we are seeing organizations come to us and say, hey, can we use the VG1 solution to manage conflicting regulations or regulations that um, are, are, we believe are different and we have to educate them and say, actually, you know, 80% of all of them are based on the same thing. Let us build your um, your baseline on the system, or in fact, ours is self-service, so they can actually build it themselves. And then you click on PCI, HIPAA, GDPR, and at a click of a button, you can show local regulators or enforcement bodies what's happening. But you as an organization know that you're looking at the baseline because really the baseline is protecting the overall structure of your of your uh, ecosystem. So that that's one of the trends that, that we're seeing, yeah. Huh. That is really interesting. So you're saying that your solution can basically has it already built in of all the different compliance frameworks and you can set a baseline for your environment um, and you can use those compliance packages, so to speak, like as like a goal for your organization. And as you move towards it, you can monitor your progress and show the auditors your progress does the solution also offer up um like automatic ways to submit evidence and things like that so like i could just go to the auditor run a report and say here's everything that you need to know give me my give me my certification yeah you you can do that i mean obviously uh, it's important to be able to not only upload evidence but link evidence to different control points, different assets, uh, different regulations or, or frameworks. Um, I, I, you know, if I had one piece of advice to, to give anyone in the market for GRC or IRM is that whether they use us or some of our esteemed competitors, they need to choose a solution that is multidimensional. And what I mean by multidimensional is that it allows them to build their own baseline on their own without consultants or with the help of consultants consultants, but without having to customize the software. The solution needs to be able to map to their ecosystem. The second thing is that um, they need to be able to address compliance and security from different angles, either starting from an asset. So you start by uploading your asset inventory, or you actually perform the asset inventory on the tool, in, in our case, if you want to do so. Um, and you work from the asset up and then the solution will say, hey, that asset is a point of sale system. So you you'd need to comply with PCI. Alternatively, what you can do is use the, again, the same solution to say, I'm starting from PCI and all of the controls of the 12 high level requirements of PCI. And then I drill down to the assets. But at the end of the day, what you want is a solution that allows you to say, tell me all of my um, network assets that are part of my ecosystem in South America, where I'm in compliance with local regulations, but not uh, uh, by the end of this month, uh, that have been managed by Mathieu and approved by Joseph. That's really where you want to go, right? Because it's, it's, a, it's a tool that allows you to essentially govern what's happening from a, from a regulation and a compliance perspective. Um, compliance is, you know, you can be compliant at, uh, at the time when you submit your compliance documents. By the time you get the this, this stamp of approval, you're probably out of compliance. So the other thing to look for in a, in a solution is a solution that will allow you to manage the recurring 
tasks of staying compliant. Um, and, and, you know, there are daily tasks, weekly tasks, monthly, quarterly, yearly, and then once-off tasks. I think PCI defined those tasks really, really well. In fact, um, Verizon had published a very good document a few years ago around um, the number of tasks to remain compliant in with PCI if you were in scope for the the, uh, the self-assessment questionnaire D, which is the most onerous one. Um, and they were saying this just north of 2,700 tasks to complete every year. So what you want is you want a solution that'll be able to uh, tell you, hey, you want to check your compliance with HIPAA. We've got a HIPAA standard here, and we know all of the tasks that need to be completed on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly basis in order to check that you're, you haven't fallen out of compliance or to take corrective action if you have. We also want a tool that is going to allow me to um, assign tasks to you that potentially you can subdivide and assign to other people. But if something goes wrong, we have that approval process within the tool that says, yes, it was, this is how we came to the conclusion that the task had been completed and therefore the control was, was, uh, was in place. Um, so there's all those different things that you need to, to keep in, in mind when you choose a solution. But at the end of the day, the solution automates most of it and allows you to put in place that, that universal data protection framework or program, whichever way you want to call it. Hmm. And it sounds like it fits pretty well to any team size, really. And I, that's something that I've been running into where, you know, solutions will be fantastic solutions if you have eight people on your team and you can devote 50% of the resources to this solution to kind of get it up and running and utilize it, right? Um, the, the solutions that always stick out to me are the ones that can really scale to the size of your team that, you know, you don't need eight people to run it. You only need one or two. And once you deploy it, it's, it's good to go, right? It kind of maintains itself. And then from there on out, you can get value from the tool. Uh, that's, it's a lot more difficult than what a lot of people would think, um, it should be, you know, like it's it's actually a pretty difficult thing to find in the market. Yeah, and I, you know, we pride ourselves in um, uh, in providing a solution that is as self service as as we can, as easy to navigate. Our onboarding process is a two hour session. Um, uh, of course, we're here, you know, throughout to to support uh, folks. We also have a ticketing system that that's uh, in, incorporated into into our tools. So if you've got any issues, uh, you can either manage uh, your own internal tickets or you can escalate tickets to us and or to third parties that actually provide the consulting because we don't do the consulting. Part of the reason why we, we, we don't do that type of consulting is because we would end up uh, assessing our own work, which we feel is not the right way to do. Uh, yes, you make more money as a vendor, but uh, first of all, I I I, I would ha uh, hazard. Um, uh, I, I would say that it's it's uh, it's slightly unethical, but but also it doesn't really add the value that it's supposed to add, you know. Um, and so I, I think that um, you need to work with people that can guide you to the uh, consulting 
firms that will create a, a simple, cost-effective, continuous program for you. You don't necessarily need three months of consulting before you can turn the key and start using the, the tool. With us, uh, you can start using the tool for training immediately, for policies immediately. And of course, it's going to take time for you to upload your evidence and to go through all of the controls, upload your assets and so on. But you would have that with any solution. You know, um, I think that another interesting point here is that sometimes we, we it, GRC, IRM, it's a, it's, it's a crowded market, right? But sometimes we actually compete with the company itself, with the, with the end user itself, because um, they've been using maybe something based um, on Jira for project management. They've put in like an asset system on Excel. Uh, they uh, use SharePoint to manage uh, all of their policies and procedures. And they've built this big patchwork of uh, somewhat complementing solutions um, that are not real solutions. It's just like essentially taking an off-the-shelf program and, and customizing it. And it works if nobody changes the infrastructure. Right, and one of the things that we we're always told is that uh, if you if you build a GRC tool based on that kind of patchwork, and you want to go back one step because you realize you missed a step in the risk analysis, for instance, well, you can't because the Excel spreadsheet hasn't been built to do that. Whereas with a GRC tool, you you can do that, and so it's interesting that. Part of the questions that the, the pre-qualification pre questions that we always ask is, um, do you do you have your own patchwork of tools that you use? To some extent, it's easier uh, to compete with one competitor than to compete with all of the all of the different uh, solutions that are being used, managed by different people. Uh, there's a little bit of ego and history attaching to all of the different projects. And we need to take that into account because we come in at, as the outsiders and we just need to bring everybody together and say, guys, what you built is great because it's not your, your business and you built something that works, but it's very cumbersome and it's not, it's not going to grow with your business. So let us take the best of what you're doing and show you how a tool can actually replace that or perhaps we can integrate with some of the stuff that you've already done. Um, so it, it's also an interesting angle for us from a, from a commercial perspective and from a, a project management perspective. Yeah, it's definitely a very interesting uh, angle that you guys uh, approach this problem with, right? Like you can't 95, 99% of the time, right? Like you can't just go to someone and be like, oh, these are all the things that you're doing wrong, you know, because there's some ownership somewhere down that line that you're you're talking to the person that potentially set that up and, you know, designed that system and whatnot. And so there's, there's a lot of ownership that goes along with that. And so when you step in and it's like, hey, you're doing these, you know, 12 things, great. Let's show you how this solution can come in and help you do more things better than how you're already doing these 12 things great. Yeah, and so let's build on on, on all the research work you've done, all the mapping that you've right. done, and try and simplify what you're doing so that you can, you can use your time to do other stuff, like threat intelligence, for instance. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. It, it becomes very hard to uh, focus on the other areas of security when you don't even know where you stand compliance wise, you, you know, that like, that's a huge thing. 
Yeah, and it's sometimes we just can't see the wood for the trees, you know, because they're, they're just like so into, I have a deadline for my PCI compliance or the regulator is coming next month and we know we have to be ready. And you kind of lose sight of the more strategic approach towards security and you become extremely tactical. And there are times where you need to do that. I mean, if the regulator the regulator was nice enough to tell you when they're coming as opposed to barging in, uh, the least you can do is be prepared for them, you know? But uh, on the other hand, you, you, you don't want to um, drop the ball for other stuff, you know? And we, and, and, and we see this, it's another interesting uh, element is with MNA. Uh, so when organizations either grow or shrink, they tend to drop the ball uh, with regards to security and compliance because it's all about getting the, the deal across. And you'd be surprised how many uh, hacking groups are actually actively looking at the market, seeing who's up for sale, who's actually growing. And they focus on, on those companies because they know that uh, nine times out of 10, they're going to drop their guard with regards to mm -hmm. compliance and security. Yeah, that that's very true. Um, that's a good way of looking at it too. I think, you know, I've I've been at a few companies where they've done a lot of mergers and acquisitions, and one company that, you know, that that was their main way of growing and expanding as a company was through mergers and acquisitions, and uh, that company had the process nailed down pretty well. They involved security right from the very start. Of starting to talk to that company about merging or acquiring them um, and security we had a whole team in security that did just complete audits of you know this other company to see okay this matches with our security stack or they're lacking in this area this is something that we're gonna have to buy day one when we buy them um, you know all these different things and then there's the other side of that coin right where the other companies will though They'll buy another company or, or do a merge or whatnot, and uh, they won't do any of that work until the auditor comes around and they're like, "How did you, how did you fall out of compliance this severely?" You know, and it's kind of like a shock to them uh, because they just took that other company's word or whatever you know they were they were asking them right, like saying like, "Hey, do you encrypt your data? Do you store your data? You know, within this same country and things like that, right?" Um, I wonder if, I wonder if it could be, you know, as the Vigitrust product grows, I wonder if it would be beneficial for, you know, as more and more companies use it to like, say I'm getting bought out by you. If I just provide you a report, like, Hey, this is the current, you know, security posture of our environment, um, and do with it what you will, that that would probably make sense to get around some of that. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, our, our growth strategy is really through partnerships and um, through working with uh, other vendors, right? So first of all, we've got open APIs that allow us to to take feeds from uh, third-party solutions, asset inventory, point-of-sale devices, uh, data discovery tools, and so on. Um, we also have great partnerships with InfoSec security companies who actually use the tool to perform their assessments and to essentially 
own the security on behalf of a third party. And of late, we've done a lot of work with managed security s- service providers who want to extend their ability to 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 offer services to to the end users. Uh, of course, there's opportunities for M and A. Right, because it's a it's a very active market, and so uh, there's not a day that goes by that uh, some company uh, would knock at the door and say, "Hey, you you look interesting. You've got you've got something special here." Um, and whilst it's it's very flattering, it's not always necessarily the right fit. Uh, but equally, we are looking at who else is on the market to to add value to what we do. At the end of the day, our roots are in security assessments. So we believe that we have a fair understanding of the pains and challenges that the security people go through. And what we want to do is we want to build a solution um, and access to services, whether we provide them directly, which is really not our, our strategy right now, or, or whether we, we, we subcontract them or we, we offload them to, to trusted third parties. And, and we want the overall result to make life simpler for security people so they have more time to think strate- strategically, to talk to the board, to make the board their ally, and to really build that universal program I was talking uh, uh, about earlier on. So um, it's it's a very interesting journey. And, and of course, you know, uh, in, in the next few months, in the next few years, there's going to be new attack vectors, there's going to be new groups attacking, and there's going to be new regulations. So you need to build, when you build solutions, you need to build them with an architecture that allows you to address the changes in the market. You can't... You can't uh, you can't really build a solution just for PCI 4.0. You have to build a solution for PCI 4.0, bearing in mind at some stage there's going to be 4.1, 4, 2, 4, 3, 5, 6, 7. Um, and, and, and that, you know, uh, maybe one day PCI will be mandatory in some countries, not mandatory in others, incorporated in another solution or another regulation. So... Um, it, 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 you need to be able to offer something that's going to grow, right? So I and I, I and that that's probably another piece of advice that unless you're in a very very niche market uh, where you know that the industry is extremely stable and there's rarely any new regulation, don't invest in a point solution that only addresses that market because it's not going to grow with you. Right. So uh, you, you're going to end up having to make that investment time and time again. And it's not very strategic. It's, it's super tactical, actually. Hmm. So with everything going on in the world, and I know that we spoke, you know, earlier in the year, actually closer to uh, the whole Russia-Ukraine thing when it kicked off. Have you seen uh, since then new attack vectors come up that you haven't seen before that – you know, you're you're potentially mapping in your solution somehow uh, to help companies. I just out of curiosity. So you know, we again as part of our advisory board, we have folks from say CrowdStrike that provide excellent uh, threat intel and information. Um, what we are seeing though from our customer base and from the advisory board is a lot more ransomware attacks coming from Russia into into the West. Um, we are also seeing a lot of uh, attacks on supply chain and the vendor risk management cycle. 
And so if I haven't told you about that, I, I um, being French, I love mustard. Um, so but mustard is one of the things that, you know, you would associate with, uh, with with France with wine and cheese and that type, and the Eiffel Tower and things like that. Um, the reason why I have been talking about mustard a lot in the last uh, in the last few months is that since the uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia, um, there's been uh, a, I never realized that, but some of the uh, some of the ingredients in French mustards appears to be coming from grain that you can only find in Ukraine. And um, the the funny thing is, I went I went to France um, in in May or June, uh, and I think at that stage the war was like maybe ten fourteen weeks old, and um, I went to the shop and I saw this sign that said, "Owing to uh, the invasion of of Ukraine by Russia, uh, you are limited to one jar of mustard per person." And, uh, and, and I was like, wow, that's, that's, that's crazy. And so I did a little bit of research on, on that. And, and essentially the supply chain is completely, uh, distorted. Right. And so, um, whilst you can actually much to my surprise, find a lot of, um, a lot of French mustard in, in America, it's based on stocks, stockpiles that they had, uh, the production of new, new jars is actually, uh, slowed down like 90% at this stage. Uh, what does wow. that have to, uh, have to do with cybersecurity? Well, and it shows you the dependency between all of the different elements of your ecosystem. Right. So in this case, it's a case that from a physical perspective, you can't send the, the grains from one area to another. But it could easily that be that you can't send data from one area to another. I'll give you another example, uh, with, um, which is linked to geopolitical risks, is the idea of sending data from Dublin and Ireland to Belfast in Northern Ireland. Dublin is part of the Republic of Ireland. Belfast is technically part of the UK, but it's on the island of Ireland. The UK has now, has now left the EU. They initially had adequacy between the UK GDPR and uh, the standard GDPR. And now that the Information Commissioner's Office in, in London is independent, they're starting to make changes that, that threatened that adequacy. So we're now back to standard contractual binding clauses. Um, and technically, if you want to send data from Dublin to Belfast, which is a 90-minute drive, um, you need a number of, of contractual clauses in place because you, you're no longer really allowed to do that. Um, so wow. I think I think that we, you know, the, the example of uh, of uh, the, the Dublin Belfast thing and the, the French mustard is they're silly examples, but they show how interconnected we are. And so you can't take compliance or security in a silo. You have to look at the impact on your overall uh, ecosystem and how you work. If you if you know what I mean. Wow, that's that is really interesting. So one, I, I didn't hear about the. The whole mustard thing. I, I have a personal policy where, where I do my best to stay away from the news. <laughs> it uh, only stresses me out, so I, I just try to stay away from it. But um, that is extremely interesting. I, I wonder, 
I mean, I wonder how long we're going to feel the ramifications of this, right? Because I think Russia is in, in this conflict far longer than they ever anticipated. You know, they anticipated that it would be over in two weeks tops. Um, and now they're kind of, they're overly committed. Now they're, there's no going back. They have to push forward on this thing. And so I, I wonder if that's just going to exacerbate, you know, over time, let's say that it goes until January or February, right? What are the, what are more things that are going to start being impacted in the supply chain that we're going to be feeling, you know, in, in six months from now? Well, well, Do you have any the, idea of that? Well, you know, that's the thing. I'm, I'm no military expert, um, so right. I, I can't say, but what, what I, what I can see in, is that between now and the end of the year, there's going to be more issues with supply chain. There's going to be more flows that are going to be disrupted and there are going to be physical flows and data flows. Um, and so you look at organizations that had uh, maybe a subsidiary or a franchisee in Russia, not only have they lost those physical assets, but they've also lost the logical assets that were there and the data. And so now is a good time to have a look at where do I store my data? Do I have data in China? Do I have data in Taiwan? Do I have data in Yemen or wherever there's a conflict? And will I be able to work without that data, without those systems? Uh, The same way as uh, the producers of Mustard are actually looking at where do I get my grain from? You know, it was working for 30 years. I never, I, you know, I probably had an incident response plan that said, hey, if we can't get grain for two weeks, here's going to be the impact. But I pretty much, I'd hazard a very educated guess that it, it wasn't if we can't get grain for a year, you know? Um, so, so that's why it's it's a continuous process. So I, I would expect more disruptions to, to, um, to supply chain, but I think it's moving, you know, suddenly in the U S if you wanted to buy a car in January, 2022, people would tell you, ah, it's going to be very difficult. There's going to be like 16 weeks to wait to even know if you're going to get it. Now you see all the dealerships saying, we're getting through that backlog. We, we, we now have cars on the tarmac ready to go. So, you know, everybody is, get, is, is, is getting reorganized, but there's going to be further disruptions, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that that's all that we have time for today. So, Matthew, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on. As always, I enjoy our conversation uh, why don't you tell my audience, you know, where they can find you if they wanted to reach out to you and, and maybe what uh, the Vigitrust website is. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me. Always super enjoyable. So uh, you can find uh, find me through LinkedIn, obviously, Mathieu Gorge. There's, there's, there's only one uh, reasonably unique name. Uh, you can find more information on Vigitrust, so V-I-G-I-T-R-U-S-T dot com. And I also have a website, Mathieu Gorge in one word, dot com. And with regards to the book, The Cyber Elephant in the Boardroom, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, and it's about to become available uh, as an audio book as well. Oh, I can't wait to pick that up. I uh, I got into audio books and that's, that's my primary way of consumption now. So awesome. Great. Well, thank well, you. Thank you and, so much. Uh, yeah, definitely. We will have to do it again soon. Absolutely. We'd love to do that. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, everyone.